Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Will Falcon, Sunday Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. What's up? And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. I am back. He is. Good to have you back for the second half of our Sydney Film Festival coverage. We covered Cornell, Aussie's Owl Loss. We can hear our chat up on podcast and on 2SCR. And we are talking more things Sydney Film Festival in this episode. It's ongoing until June 21st. We were talking specifically about three films we caught, Sea Fever, Charter and Kids Run, which you can catch now that are streaming. First, we want to talk about some of the things that are happening about town, including the big news of the day is that of July 1st, with social distancing measures, cinemas. They're reopening. Some are reopening the following week. I know the Ritz and the Orpheum are opening. So the Orpheum is opening up from the following week, but July 1st, cinemas can reopen. Yeah, and uh, the Ritz will be having about a week after reopening a big Fellini retrospective with eight films by the master, not including maybe my two favorites, Avitaloni and Knights of Kiberia, but basically all the other major Fellini films through different phases of his career are represented. Um, That'll be a treat. Great way to welcome us back to the glorious church of light, whatever pretentious phrase I can summon up for cinemas. I do love cinemas. My, my third favorite Fellini film, The Dolce Vita, turns 60 this week. So. I think that's why they've... Uh, no, it's his 100th birthday. Ah, wow. Well, yeah, it's the Cinema Reborn crew were going to include this retrospective as part of their festival this year, which was cancelled. Instead, you at least get to enjoy the Fellini retrospective at the Ritz. It's nice that we don't have films in a respect that... Because major studios it's aren't nice that we do that films. Like, Tenet, like we predicted. And instead of showing Labyrinth and other big 80s movies, which are great, no, let's go back. Let's watch some classics you wouldn't otherwise see on the big screen. Yeah, um, unless I've uh, missed something, Tenet is still coming out just two weeks later. It's now set for around August. 31st of July? Yeah, 31st of July. 31st of July, all right. A little bit of delay. We'll see how long that stands. We hope it does come out because we do really want to cover it. Yeah, I think they'll be keeping an eye on how many people go to the cinemas upon reopening to decide whether they stick to that date or push it back to maybe when people are less afraid of being in enclosed air-conditioned spaces. Especially if they can't go with a bunch of people think a full crowd for a big budget movie. No, I I think Christopher Nolan has enough of a push that people will still come out and and watch a Christopher Nolan movie. It's just that because of restrictions, it'll be like, if you're forced to only have a capacity of, let's say, 50%, then yeah, I think the producers will take a loss. And I think that will just basically factor into... It really depends, I think, also on how long the extended release of this film is going to go for. Because they were talking earlier about Tenet potentially sticking around much longer than films usually do and playing for months. Months and months and months. It could be playing for a year before they release it on video. Parasite's been playing for a better part of a year, so... Right. I mean, they even had a black and white version of Parasite, which... Which no one saw, and why? I don't know, why yeah. Bother? If Tenet is good enough, that it's, a, it's an interesting strategy. Like, the film just keeps going in cinemas, and eventually <laughs> you're going to go and see it. M- much like the, the central premise of the film, film right? Played at the Orpheum for six months. Oh, yeah, as it months. is in heaven. As it is in heaven. It's, it's going to be that in my big fat Greek wedding <laughs> for action movie junkies like ourselves. Hmm. <laughs> um, speaking of Parasite and Oscar winning movies, um, in today's episode of Oscars Be Dumb, the Academy Awards have postponed not only their ceremony until April, April 25th, which is fine, but I think for the first time in history, they've actually expanded the 12 month period by which films for this year's ceremony is eligible to 14 months till April. So when is the ceremony actually going to be held? April 25th, Anzac Day. Huh. Okay. Um, me and Glenn discussed this a little bit before the show started recording. We're both on the page that this is a move to appease the studio executives. They don't want to throw a bone to Netflix and give them all the nominations. I think they realized that a lot of the Oscar bait type films were going into production only around the beginning of this year. They have a shorter post-production time than the big summer blockbusters. Um, they wouldn't be ready on time. But major studios in most respects had opportunities to release these films on other platforms they could have they chose not to and that's to their detriment if they're not eligible for the oscars or other award ceremonies the oscars have thrown them a massive bone and it's not fair to the other films who went ahead and took a risk and or have issued their films out now or will do so in the near future but i'm thinking uh, is oscar bay for especially for next year as big 
an incentive as it is in previous years because I think the world that we're living in is mostly about how do you minimize losses and yet release your films in a manner that you can recover costs rather than just become an award paid kind of scenario. Going to streaming, unless Netflix is going to throw you a ton of money, which they won't, is a loss. Yeah. So it, it basically, exactly. if, if all these films, if some of these are $100 million grosses potentially and they all go to streaming instead, that's just a write off for the studios. I mean, so no I, amount of Academy Awards, 10, 12, or 20, is going to make up for that kind of a bottom line hit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think the studio, um, I think they should have just sucked it in. I think the Oscars should have said, tough, it's a strange year. We're going to nominate some different kind of award uh, films this year. It would have been much more interesting. Oh yeah, Invisible Man, Baby. Yeah, oh. it's all it's all tied in with the whole business side of Hollywood, and they've got to keep those those investors happy. Yeah. So that is our late weekly installment of um, Oscars being Oscars and doing terrible Oscar things. Ah, oh. now we don't have to talk about it till April, guys. Woohoo! Now. Talking about things that are happening in town this week, of course, the Sydney Film Festival is in full swing until the 21st. You can purchase a full festival pass to 200 or purchase passes to individual strands or films. Also online is the St. Kilda Film Festival out of Melbourne, which is accessible throughout the country for the first time, which is screening shorts. The Cinema and Science Fiction International, Science International Film Festival, excuse me, is online now. The drive-in theatre addition that has popped up in addition to Sydney's Blacktown Drive-In Theatre, Move-In Car from Move-In Bed, is screening over at Moore Park. And the Static Vision are going into their 12th week of screenings on this Friday night. Adversal announced the second now online iteration of the Hyperlinks Festival, which will be taking place from June 10th to 12th. Monster Fest is also having an event in their second week, weekly series on 9pm 9, 9 on Friday night, which is a Facebook watch party. And also on Friday night, PAX Night, is the Human Rights, Arts and Film Festival are doing one of their a regular online screenings. So those are all events you can catch in the next week. But for now, we are talking Sydney Film Festival. We are, let us know what you're watching because there's a lot of stuff that's streaming online. We picked three films, three very different ones, at least ones we thought were very different. They're all from the Europe Voices of Women in Film strand, which is one of the, uh, one of the only strands of the festival and the only one that has narrative features. Yes. Um, and we picked films from Germany, Ireland, and Sweden, um, though the Irish one is in Irish-Swedish co-production. And we're going to start with the German film, which is also a German language film, but partially in Russian as well, which is Kids Run. It's from director Barbara Ott and stars Janis Neowothner. Excuse me if I mispronounced any of the names here. And I understand he's actually a bit of a, does some like fantasy fun comedy stuff in Germany. So This is a big change for him big change from i think he's, he's I, I haven't seen his work before he is quite a well well known face within germany it is a story of uh amateur boxer uh played by neil Wachner, who is a father of three and struggling to make ends meet he has three children two different women both of whom in different respects he is estranged from and is just trying to hold down a regular job and sees children he's trying to make ends meet so he can have a regular life and have a regular apartment for them to come back to here's some months behind the rent and like many others in films we have seen before takes the boxing route for me in almost all respects we'll get to the ending a little bit later this is a lot of boxing by the numbers we've seen boxing films come out as metaphors for struggle and aspiration every year and while there's yeah. some things that are different about this this is the latest in a long long line yeah it's kind of a film festival filler film i think because it's mostly going to play around the world at festivals and it's not going to stand out beyond them because i'm a boxer and this is my last shot at redemption stories are really by the numbers and this is though leaning a little bit more into the grimy film festival social realism bleakness this is essentially just another one of those but it, it's a by the numbers bleak film festival social issues drama um and it's a by the numbers boxing slash you know social universal story you can, you can set this almost anywhere there isn't anything too particularly distinct to its setting but um i didn't find it terrible i thought it was no, yeah i thought it was engaging enough um, I thought the characters were all fairly consistent and believable in the way they acted with, with maybe a few minor exceptions towards the end, but it, it didn't jar me. It, it felt like it was well thought through. Um, the main thing that I took away from it is how good Nivofna is. 
I thought he was a really strong lead. I thought he made this kind of, you know, strong, masculine, inexpressive character while revealing the kind of underlying depths and contradictions. Um, he was really, really good. He was. I think one of the things that actually made this film a lot more bearable for me was his performance. Mm-hmm. Given that, you know, we've seen a lot of those boxer type performances over the years, but it's interesting when, you know, that they're all hearts of gold, but he, yeah. for this one, actually inhabited that boxer persona and it was shown through a lot of his interactions with people, including his kids. And that was the more interesting bit, like when he would interact with his kids, he was a lot more rough and unrefined in his interactions with them, like an actual boxer would be, rather than, you know, because usually you have the Stallone version, which is like, I'm a boxer in the ring, but really kind of hearted, you know, sweetheart, when you're talking to his family and kids. And I'm like, these are two different people. How is, where is here? There's more consistency in his character to actually convince you that he's a boxer through and through. I felt he was really good. I felt in particular, I'm going to make a similar comment about the next one we're going to talk about too. The two children, the child actors were really good, especially the young woman, his eldest child, who probably has one of the strongest arcs throughout the film. As a boxer also, um, it frustrates me to a great extent how in a lot of boxing films, people aren't don't either have the physical build for a boxer or... Um, and this, he does. I don't think he he's totally does. in the heavyweight division. He's 89 kilograms and he wouldn't compete in that, in that weight class. But he You could is, buy him as like a midweight kind of guy. He's a, he's a big dude. He's, 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 a, he's a big dude, yeah. I, I was I, terrified. I, I, but having said that, his physique and uh, the boxing scenes were relatively well done and relatively realistic compared to a lot of boxing fare. Having said that, he I totally agree in the weight class. I think it's unlikely that this particular person would help, but the film does address this in part. I totally agree with what Virat was saying about the way that he interacts with people, though. He's built around being stoic and bearing punches. Like, that is the kind of way he relates to the world. And he is a little bit rougher, rough with his kids without being physically abusive. Yeah, but it was still actually it's a bit d- disconcerting to watch. Because you it is because he's on his films. He's edging on that line, yeah. I, where it's so, like, is this guy actually going going to one day snap and become violent? Exactly. Where you you wonder that because you can see that he has the potential too, but he's restraining a lot. Yeah, because you see it in the scene with the kitten, which you're not going to yeah. ruin. I read a review which um, harshly criticized him, and I actually think it was very hard to watch. But I think it was actually one of the best scenes in the film. Was it spoke to his um, state of mind and mm. it spoke to where he was, and it spoke to his sense of extremeness and desperation. And it's also it's a character that keeps making mistakes and trying to make other people pay for them, and is fighting That's to try theme, and prove theme, himself. I think would also come up in the other film that we're going to talk about is the fact that how the major characters in these movies seem to somehow not take responsibility for their actions mm-hmm. and just think everyone else is at fault instead of realizing that if they just did the right thing, this movie would not even have to have to be made, to be honest, if they just realized their mistake in the first five minutes. Well, this mm. was like, yeah. Well, that, so, speaks, that speaks to his arc. And on that, with boxing films, like Rocky, the Rocky series is basically the coda for almost every boxing film and very few find a way to move too greatly beyond how one of those films transpires. This has, I'm not going to ruin the ending, but this has a moment which is akin to a key moment in Rocky Balboa, but it actually goes on quite a different tangent. It's something that happens in the final act of this film in the course of the boxing sequences, which is distinct from what I've seen from a lot of boxing movies. It is original as far as I can tell. Yeah, and, and I, I thought it was that. right for this story. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I think, to the film's greatest credit, that and uh, the young actress who played his eldest daughter. There are definitely uh, credits to the film. It's just not distinct enough overall. No. It's and also, familiar, I, I, had, I had major, major problems with the, the arc of his ex-girlfriend and basically how it just gets resolved, essentially, without actually ever having a justification, given that so yeah, much we, we, we time see. is paid to the fact that she wants something distinct out of her life. Hmm. And then how that arc is resolved was just a major... It was rushed, and it, and it was inconsistent, and we needed more time to explore what was going on there. Yeah, they, they wanted a certain note for the film to end on, and it didn't earn it, and it goes back to the matter of, if the films be good consequences consequences need to happen to characters and need to play out in full and that tangent it didn't Mm. the one good other good thing that i liked about the film was actually how lived in it was in terms of its social milieu 
So you can see how difficult it is to break the cycle of poverty, which is what a lot of boxing films allude to, but they are not actually able to depict quite clearly. But this was, you could see from the environment that he was a part of that he could not find and move beyond his social class and mobility because of certain factors. And those factors are clearly fleshed out. And the fact that he was struggling to actually, you know, move beyond it. So living day to day and having that poverty cycle and breaking through that was actually such a big part of the situation mm-hmm. he found himself in. Yeah, the and first Rocky is standard for this. I know, but still, it's interesting to see how that mirrored the boxing metaphor. And, and even though that's been played, I thought it was an interesting task to bring in the oppression of social pressures mm. as like an actual, you know, an actual punch or an uppercut to your kind of morale and your boosting mm. kind of thing. And he felt... If- even so, that's this kind of like you're fighting on every front, masculine poetry about yeah. the, the every man. It, it, it's definitely been done, you know. Yeah, but it, it, it did feel, feel a bit like you know the Ken Loach kind of story of Mr. Oh yeah, it totally is. Or Dardenne Brothers. Yeah. But I'm I'm glad that those were more poetic touches because otherwise I was feeling like I've seen everything. But I'm glad it borrowed in bits and pieces and then put its own twist to it. Mm. It still didn't make sure that. It was not a completely distinct identity, but still it was different enough to not make me completely hate it. Like, otherwise I would be rolling my eyes in 30 minutes in. But I sat through all of it and it wasn't completely unbearable. There was enough distinct, I give it more credit than that. There was enough distinct for me to enjoy it as a film. However, there wasn't so much that was original or, and so, or certainly unique to it that I was yeah, found it, it especially memorable. It was decent, but it's hard to recommend for that reason. Yeah. So that is Kids Run. The next one we're chatting about... Charter. Charter. Uh, maybe there's a particular context to the name um, in, that people of Swedish background in Sweden might be aware of. Um, I'm not. I didn't understand the title. Yeah. I, I didn't understand the title. Um, maybe, maybe it is about like uncharted territory or whatever. Chartered. I didn't quite take that from it. Okay. Right. Uh, Ch- Charter is a film from Amanda Cornell starring Anne Del Again, excuse me if I've mispronounced her name, about a mother who is in the midst of a quite a bitter custody battle with her former husband over their two children and decides at, at a point that it's going to reach a crux to take her two children on a trip to I think it's the Canary Islands and the film the Island of Tenerife yeah Tenerife yeah and yeah if anyone who who saw the whistlers last year this is yes. I think a neighboring island to La Gomera and and and, and we get a reference to that the whistling we do language. the whistling language Yep. <laughs> yes. So I never made the connection. We do. I remember the Western language. I just didn't realize it was the same. It is. Yeah. Graphic setting. It, is, it, it is. is. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the tension between her, her ex-husband, her two children, and the, and personally the authorities and else that is looming over her and their heads. A- again, this is a story which is universal and we've seen play out in many different films, many different contexts. We see films like this, um, come regularly on the festival scene. I'll make a similar comment as I did the previous film that the main actress, the main performer is very good. The two child actors, and especially the elder lead, are also very talented. I enjoyed it for that. But, and I'll get to a couple of individual scenes that I quite enjoyed and quite liked, but there isn't too much of this distinct about this either to stand out beyond what would be a general festival crop. And I say that this was, for me, just like, generic film festival sludge this, this is horrible film, no, it, I, I was I, yeah i thought this was actually just pretty awful um i thought it was so contrived it right like there's one scene in particular that i'm going to have to pick apart later on just to point out how yeah. manipulative is it the karaoke scene no though that was no, pretty bad no, it's the no, club no. scene later yes, on yes yeah um, okay. I'll, I'll pick i'll i'll get to that um but i was thinking that this whole scenario and the twists and turns feel contrived and artificial all throughout the film and then there's this one moment that just encapsulates everything i was hating about the movie but yeah. we'll get to that just on a, more, that. Th- on a think, more general level on a, yeah i think first of all please can we stop using mental illness as such a big crutch for everything and, it, and, it, and i think this movie just does it so badly and there'd be movies that have done it incredibly sensitively and well like leave no trace for example recently which is also in the top 40 Sydney Film Festival picks that you can watch. Yeah, you should go see a that. Better, better example of how to use mental illness if you're going to go down that path. But this film is so incredible. It uses th- all right. terms like right. psychosis and psychotic in a way without. All right. Yeah. I want to respond directly to that. 
that is an interpretation. It's a fair interpretation. I think it is debatable to an extent. What I do like about this film is that it leaves a lot open to interpretation in terms of her, whether to what extent she is a reliable narrator. That's, it's funny that that's the strength of the film to you because for me, that was a peek at the better film that it could have been. Like I saw what they were doing with this ambiguity where it, it goes between, oh, is she righteous doing the right thing when there's a world that is just set up against her because of inequality or, or whatever um, versus like, oh, is, is she's breaking the law and maybe people don't trust her for a reason. That idea is interesting, but there's a point where I think you have to resolve some of these ambiguities in order to progress the story and progress the themes of the narrative. And this film, I think, was afraid to do that. Whether they, uh, I think it's um, the ambiguities are interesting, but it didn't lean hard enough into that that kind of mystery to make it really interesting. And at a certain point, um, I wanted to see stuff resolved. I'll give you an example. They, um, it seems like she might just be from some of the things that are being said and implied a chaotically mentally ill person, right? But from what what do we know about her early on? She seems to be a surgeon. Like if she was really that chaotic that she couldn't have any kind of structure or um, rigidity in her life at all, would she be able to be a surgeon? I don't think so. I think the whole thing just felt yeah. artificial to me I, and I contradictory. Think more, more than that, I feel we needed some grounding. Well, given we do context as to the nature of the marriage breakup, and I appreciate this is the entirely relevant, even though it is relevant to some extent. But I think we need a little bit more of that in able to, for it not just to be open to interpretation, but for us to make a sync judgment call. I think I, I agree that I, I appreciate this ambiguity in that we can have discussions like this, but I would like to be a little more confident in the calls I can make about this character in this film and that those bits are left a little too open. I agree. I, I think I, I, can, I can kind of see what they were going for in terms of like, you're never quite sure whose side or who's, you know, it's a Rashomon effect about, you know, mm. you're never quite sure which version of the story you're supposed to believe, whether it is her ex-husband or her point of view, because there's always this kind of supposed tension as if like, you know, uh, are, are the kids actually safe and who are the safer with? Mm. In terms of, because there's this back and forth. Or neither, and, another fair or, interpretation. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there's never enough uh, background laid for us to invest in either of these characters for me to really understand whose perspective I'm supposed to uh, really somewhat see through because the character grounding is so faint. Well, I think it's easy to create mystery through interpretation, sorry, through ambiguity and leaving everything open to interpretation, but there's a point where you need it's better and necessary to fill in with interesting details. Um, and I think this was unable to do that. Like there was a point where the ambiguity I think was actually getting in the way of the narrative because it felt like if the characters would start talking about some of these issues, some of the pro uh, problems between the characters, if not being resolved could have, taken steps to move towards a resolution. I understand that this is that. the kind of relationship where some things are hard to talk about and, and there's all these walls, but I felt at a certain point it was an artificial contrivance of narrative that no one ever talks about the issues that would fill us in on what's going on and would also maybe bring us to the resolution the film ultimately gets to faster. So because no one's talking about anything, so nothing can get resolved the, a lot of the film, I think, is in a holding pattern where the plot's just kind of spinning its wheels and nothing much is actually happening. I don't begrudge the film the extreme reticence of multiple characters to not talk about history or what may have happened, in the, especially within the confines of seeing each other immediately for the first time in a little while in a hyper-stressed situation, in a situation where um, you are concern for your own future and those um, not only who have care but those who are around you and your immediate family i can understand how they would not want to tease this out one element of it is teased out later in the film we'll give it more an explanation if people who do want to be able to point to it and say hey this is the direction it's going um but i think there's enough of a flux in the relationship that 
I didn't feel it was static. I referred to, we, we, I mentioned earlier the karaoke scene that I actually quite liked. It started off as what for me was going to be the worst scene in the film. I hate when characters use a song to sing about their feelings, but then it actually teased out the name between the three as they all began to sing a lot better. So it could have been a terrible scene, but I feel it was actually a peak of the movie for me. The thing about this flux you talk about is to me, it didn't feel like their characters were grounded from a real enough place or that there was enough actual depth to their relationships or to their dynamic. So it seemed almost uh, superfluous, you know, whether, oh, now our, our, the kids are shifting to being more oriented towards being sympathetic to the mom. Oh, no, now something annoys them. Like it, it seemed to basically happen on a whim as opposed to being well thought through in, in, in terms of character progression. And sometimes these turns are actually manipulated by weird artificial things in the narrative, like them running into the kids from The Shining at a pool. The twins, I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, no, none of the ways anyone else in this film acted made too much sense to me. Mm. Okay, okay. Actually, uh, I, I do have something to say about that scene in the pool, the kids from The Shining, for example. I did, I did, I it did was like, the kids from The Shining. At, at no point in the film did we ever get to understand how this kind of badminton effect that, you know, this shuttle clocking through. In yeah, the I didn't world. understand why or how, why it was happening. It was just and, and like, what kind now of we, impact, we like you, now we don't, now we like you, now what, we don't. What kind of impact can it be was like having on the, on the actual kids? And there was this one scene with the, the Shining Kids, which demonstrates, especially with the young boy, and how he then reacts and i think that was one of the few instances which i was genuinely taken aback and i'm like okay now i can see like what kind of impact this kind of perverse game and it felt like a challenge game after a while because it was just like you know a game of hide and seek to be honest essentially and you never quite understood the ramifications of what these kids were going through except they had no agency through and through they were just like okay now you're with us now you're with me now you're with me now yeah yeah, that's what and that's what's often like when you're thing, a teenager in divorced families. However, um, the film needs to go further than that to be satisfying as a narrative, like either to give some kind of backstory or to really delve into that chaotic psychology in the children in a deeper way than this did. As it, as it was, it just felt kind of half-baked to me. However, what I liked is that, and we can't really talk about this without spoilers, but in the final act, an issue, a choice confronts the main character, the likes of which especially as it pans out, at least as it appears to pan out, we don't often see in film. It's relatively honest having the sort of issue play out in the movie. It's relatively confronting. And I liked that it was there. This honestly could have been the bulk of the film for me, watching her deal with- I was thinking that that would have been much better because most of the twists and turns in the narrative for me didn't feel like they came from a genuine place. With that in mind, can I talk about the club scene? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Okay, so after the the daughter runs away, she's on a period of, I don't like you, mom. She runs off with some kids and she goes to the club. There's a number of things that are crazy going on here. One, the it's every parent's nightmare mood of all the shots of, oh no, the drunk people as the Young boys with hooded jackets. Exactly. In in fairness, there are a lot of dickheads out there with hooded jackets. Yeah, there are. I agree. There totally are. But at the the same time, it felt like it was striking this really sensationalistic, manipulative tone. It reminded me of the the scene of Destroyer. Right. We go into the club and we get the ultimate sensationalistic manipulative shot where we see um, the, the boy's face as he looks up with this kind of confused horror at the, the topless dancing girls on the poles. Now, this shot didn't have the effect I think it was meant to have on me because immediately I just thought, would that boy be allowed in the club? I looked it up. And no, he wouldn't. You have to be at least 16 to be admitted into clubs in Spain. Chris is being responsible. And Chris, you're right. Yeah. That's right. And th- you're not supposed to think about that because if you did, you'd realize that the daughter wouldn't be allowed in there either. Um, so it's already on thin ice, but then it turns out the mum arrived just in time to see the, oh no, drugs being sensually pushed into the, into the daughter's mouth by the evil hooded jacket man. She approaches the guy and it turns out it's a Tic Tac. How many people uh, right. at a club sensually put Tic Tacs into each other's mouth We're just in time for their mum to be like, and if, it's drugs. And if, oh man. It was one of those things where, you know, when you're so annoyed by a scene, it was just like nothing that's going on here makes sense. And it's all ultra manipulative. I'm glad, Chris, that you brought up the manipulative aspects of the film because I had a lot of issues as well. And there were some other scenes that were equally manipulative, if not more than the club scene. There is an aspect about one of the characters, maybe we can speculate whether or not they've actually been physically harmed. 
And the way the film treats that as... Not to be clear, physically harmed in the, when in the custody of the father. Yes. It's, it's a question but, as to that. But the question is, that the speculation is my problem with it because it's manipulative because the film plays it up as the point that that may be the case, but that may not be the case entirely. It's, it is actually played up to depict one thing when it could be an entirely different thing another, and that thread is never resolved. In fact, it's deliberately kept hanging. It's what I have issues with. And, because yeah. it deliberately takes an obtuse angle to it when it actually, there's no need for that. It bothered me too, because um, first of all, it was sort of, it felt contrived in the ways that the mother discovers this and then she's thinking about using it to advance her case and then that never goes anywhere. Um, yeah. And secondly, because it's such a major thing. This is what I was talking about, about the film leaving things ambiguous when um, it, it's more interesting and it becomes necessary at a certain point to give, provide interesting answers than to leave everything ambiguous. The idea of, of physical abuse of the kids is such a major thing that would alter our perception of the narrative, as oh, well as potentially the outcome. It is an emotionally hard to yeah. manipulative and it, it, can't yeah, go it, back from that. Exactly. It carries huge weight in the narrative, um, both in terms of, as I was saying, the outcome and in terms of our immediate emotional response as an audience. To throw that up there, just in, in, to kind of play with our sympathies a bit and play with this idea of ambiguity, but then not resolve it. And not only not resolve it, but just drop it completely from the narrative speaks to, um, I think, a irresponsible approach to some of these subjects. I don't um, think it was dropped completely from the narrative. I think the question as to whether the specific thing happened um, doesn't, isn't as strongly brought up again, but the overall question of the children's welfare whether there are things that they are not conveying, the issue of broadly whether whose custody they are safest in, if either parent at all, remains a consistent theme. I didn't have a so I didn't have a problem with not returning explicitly. Moreover, as and I appreciate whether they be children, anyone in that example, especially children who are in that particular circumstance and in such a vulnerable situation would not feel necessarily open and willing to articulate or discuss this at all. So that, that didn't bother me as much. I want to get back to the irres irresponsible side of filmmaking and how it looks at mental illness, because I have major issues with that. And I want to address this actually, and I want to phrase this correctly. So it's important that we get this right. I'm, I'm happy for films to actually talk about mental health and mental illness. And there've been many films that have done it correctly. But once you go there, the responsibility as a filmmaker do it right is so heavily sort of invested in you. And the fact that this film is so callous in its approach, I know what the film is trying to do. We get it. You know, the women historically have been seen as hysterical, as crazy because they are emotional and sensitive, whereas men have seemed to be the rational, logical ones. And we get that perspective that the film is the underlying narrative and the tone that the film is trying to push, that the dad is logical and rational and the woman and, you know, the wife and the mother is seen to be the crazy hysterical one. And she but, might not be. Okay, I, I want to clarify something. But the film in doing that actually plays into that binary itself. And I think that is a problem the film has. I want to clarify something, first of all. Um, it's not just a historical thing. That is a prejudice and stigma that, whether it be in the context of custody debates or else, is constantly thrown at women all over the world, as is, I think, what you're referring to earlier, the idea that women are inherently seen as more emotional and therefore less rational. But um, to be, I want to be clear as to your point. Are you arguing that the film, that the person in this film does have a mental illness and it's it's explicitly made clear in that regard and depicting it badly or are you arguing against the the characterization that this person may or may not have a mental illness which goes to as what i referred to earlier as the intended ambiguity of this picture i want to, I want to be clear as to um what I, your criticism is i think the intended ambiguity actually goes against the case that the movie is trying to make agree you're going to try to make that point that women have historically, and as you rightly pointed out, Glenn, even today, a scene like that, and it goes against them, then actually state your point, state your politics. And um, the film hops out from that. And the fact that the ambiguity actually undermines that aspect of the film, and we never get to actually understand the film's politics as clearly as we should. 
I agree. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be clear. Is your point that this is attempting to be, um, that it's a criticism of the film, that it's attempting to be deliberately ambiguous, or that this is actually a depiction of someone with mental illness and, and then treats that issue poorly? May I step in with my, with, can I paraphrase and Verrett can tell me if I'm on the wrong track? Because sure. I think this is, I think he, he and I feel similarly in this and regard and we're about to find out. I feel like running this kind of theme First of all, um, inter- as an ambiguous thing, first of all, it plays into the idea that, oh, maybe she is just the crazy hysterical woman, which is counter to the idea of negating those ideas and the feminist undercurrent because it leaves that possibility open as opposed to stating the case. And secondly, I feel like it's harmful because it feels overtly manipulative to use such sensitive subject matter as a tool to play with the audience's emotions if there's not going to be any deeper um, resolution where the film states its case. Like it feels like it's using the specter of horrible destabilizing mental illness just as a way to ping pong audiences uh, emotions and create a thriller as opposed to for a really deeper purpose. There's a point where it's you- challenging. Oh, yeah, yes. there's a point where I, you need to drop the ambiguity. Literally, exactly. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Glenn, uh, Chris. I mean, Glenn, my issue is exactly that. I know you're trying to uh, say the, where my issue is, whether the ambiguity is. I'm not trying to say what your issue is. I'm trying to clarify yeah, yeah, yeah. your criticism is, this, is that the person has yeah. an actu- it actually has a mental illness. No, and it's about. The film is doing it dirty, or the issue is that it's deliberately ambiguous in and of itself, or both. My, my, my issue is that we actually don't know. And that is the problem. I, I could be very happy to say whether or not that the person had or did not have a mental illness, but we never find that out. The film is deliberately ambiguous, and that is the problem because it negates the politics and undermines its own case if that is the route it's going to go. If it's trying to make that point about the undercurrent of mental illness and its impact on treatment of women and how that's basically gone against women historically and even today, then the ambiguity in the narrative of the film actually goes against it because it's actually playing up the issues that we it's trying to negate. Essentially, it's losing its own case in, in mm-hmm. that sense. The clarity in, in stating your politics in this kind of a movie is, I think, absolutely imperative. Because the clearer you are about where you stand in terms of as a filmmaker and where your politics are is exactly what would get your audience on side and make it actually makes it a more engaging film. There's nothing to negate the more negative interpretations we you could run from this. So that was Charter. Virat is going to leave us now because we're taking a break in the recording and he hasn't had time to catch the next film yet because we got the screener really late. Um, so Virat, thanks for being part of Film Fight Club for another week. Great to have you back. See you next time. Yeah. Good luck with Uncharted Territories. The next film we're talking about is Sea Fever from the Year of Voices of Women in Film section. It is from director Nisa Hardiman and starring Hermione Caulfield, Doug Ray Scott, uh, who people remember from Mission Impossible 2 and other films was supposed to be Wolverine, and Connie Nelson from Wonder Woman and Gladiator. It is in some respects based on the Irish legend. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. It is set in modern day. It is about a scientist played by Caulfield who goes out on a trawler into the great white ocean with a crew and then one day a mysterious creature of unknown origins and scale and power attaches part of itself to the ship and it goes from there into fantasy supernatural elements and elements of the surreal with those thriller and some horror elements, I would say. Of the three, I wish we'd covered this with Virat. I'm um, due to the timing of getting the screener of the Christmas. Didn't have time to watch it. it which is- yeah, he did not have the time to see it, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I thought it was by far the best of the three films Absolutely. that we're, we're covering tonight. This film was, I think, a a smarter corrective to a lot of creature features we've seen before. Um, it tries not to be too sensationalistic in comparison to what you expect from this genre and the kind of action or the kind of creature interactions you have. It's meant to be a more grounded sci-fi take. The characters are notably not just uh, head-slappingly stupid as they tend to be in this kind of 10 Little Indian scenario in you know creature slash horror movies. Um, and the characterization across the board, I thought was really good. The people were consistently characterized and they felt like I, how I 
imagine um, real people in this scenario would be. Uh, it reminded me of Alien in how they felt like genuine kind of um, working class people as opposed to the macho stereotypes that usually fill out those roles in Hollywood representations. They acted in ways I would expect them to, with a couple of exceptions, they were all relatively fleshed out. I think, and this is a minor criticism, they were done a little dirty by the screenplay and that it does fall back on some of the standard horror tropes. There's a character who references family, I wonder what's going to happen. There's a character who wants to have sex, I wonder what's going to happen. But regardless... Uh, the rest of the film is smart enough that I'm not think that I barely thought of that as I was watching it. You know, that it doesn't feel like it's existing in that dumb kind of space, even if it's touching on those hallmarks of the genre. The film is smart enough otherwise for me to think that that's an intentional kind of wink. On the alien reference, it is set contemporaneously, but it gives enough context for how they ended up in the current predicament, how they cannot access support at the time. And part of that is due to the full actions of some characters, which I totally believe characters are going to take in this circumstance. Um, I referred earlier to the Irish legend element of it. There's a strong role that superstition plays in this narrative and the functions of many characters. Um, and and it's realistic because we're in a world where it's established people could have these sort of preconceptions. But more than that, as in many of these films, there's a rationalist. In this case, there's the scientist, the main character played by Hermione Caulfield, who is always there to be accounted to that. But what I liked about this a lot, and it's a dynamic you, I can't really recall seeing in many horror films, many films for that matter, where it's the rationalist who has the strongest exposure to the supernatural surreal element first. So the challenges are coming from external to, oh no, this is ridiculous. She's the one who immediately is forced to question um, what she is seeing, what is happening. And that that was quite novel for me. I don't think the film, to be honest, really leans into the supernatural. There's the allusions to Irish folktales and legends, right? But the creature itself um, is dealt with using scientific methods and seems to be an explicable scientific phenomena. I might be reading that into the film, but it's not explicitly presented as, um, or even implied to be uh, presented as a um, fantastical kind of creature. It's just a creature that we haven't encountered before. Like it, do you know what I mean? Like it, it's a, it has some uh, novel movie-like characteristics, but it seems to be, okay, I'll, I'll give it a little more credit to what you're saying because it does in some ways evoke H.P. Lovecraft, Cthulhu yeah. mythos kind of with that sense of like awe and, and of the uncanny. Yeah. Um, but essentially, I, I thought her scientific rationalism was uh, used to overcome the threats, whereas the other more superstitious people on board the ship were basically stumped. And so I was confused when right at the end, the film kind of moves into a more metaphorical and mythical kind of conclusion, which I didn't think the mythic undercurrent was strong enough in the rest of the film for that conclusion to feel right. All so right. that's one of the few areas where I think the film stepped a foot wrong. I think that didn't bother me so much because there were a few illusions throughout, whether it be the masthead and the name of the boat, the particular Irish legend they're talking about, which I have some familiarity with. So they didn't, they didn't tease out too much throughout the film. They presumed a level of knowledge in this regard. I was able to benefit from that grounding and therefore I liked the end of the film a bit more. I think even, yes, it's I, this, the majority of the audience won't be an Irish audience and prospectively won't have this sort of backgrounder so i think it's something they could have teased out a little bit more in order to have have the film be that much more resonant i think that was a detraction in the movie um on the matter of the creature i'm sorry I, i'm tired i had to edit me too I, I, that's why i had that long pause before um you, you, your other point was to um sorry the um the balance they struck okay mm. in terms of the scientific versus mythical treatment of the creature it strikes a balance that I think is very akin to how a lot of Chris and I are both big Doctor Who fans and it has a bit of a Doctor Who tone in that you have a person, a scientist with a ragtag group of people in the situation they don't know and people slowly being picked off. It reminds me of a lot of the two episodes, but particularly I guarantee you the writer has seen at least season four of Doctor Who and a particular two episodes is reminding me strongly the Vash from the Rada, the darkness in the library. But there's one episode of season four, Midnight, where David Tennant goes with a group of people they're on a ship and they're in some sparkling lake and a creature they can't see 
begins to pick them off and make them think and speak in strange ways. And it's, it, it strikes that tone of, yes, this is mm. real, but this is also of a... Something of a beyond world. what we understand. And I, I liked that. It's, I, did, yeah. I, I, I liked the balance they struck in this. I, I did too. The methods they used to uh, address this were really interesting and well thought out. And mm. it wasn't just random people coming up with these great ideas. They established that you had a very highly qualified scientist who was there to do a particular job and um, yeah. could infer this. I thought also that um, this was a really successful film visually. I think it um, used its probably limited budget really well, worked to the constraints and doesn't end up feeling cheap as a result. And I think uh, the creature is, and is visually interesting. Um, there's a, some interesting scene transitions and blocking. Yeah, yeah it's well-directed visually, which um, stood out compared to the other films we've spoken about tonight for sure. Yeah, it had a very limited special effects budget, which like like a similar to an episode of Doc Two, I feel it well deployed and then a similar thing. Yeah. Um, on the matter of uh, its visual resonance, I noted both this and Charter used water symbolically. In Charter, it was very heavy-handed. Um, it means the sense of the unknown and going to the unknown. Here, it also lent to the sense of eeriness, as there's just these great shots of her looking down into the waves, wondering what's beneath the sea, and especially in the iso- relatively isolated plane they were at. Yeah, you know, you're just reminding me of um, one more way to take a shot at Chata. Okay, so you're trying to run away with your kids and not get noticed, right? Why, how about going to a holiday destination and hanging out at the resort? That seems like a good idea. Yeah, there's a lot of... Anyway. There's, there's a fair few problems with that movie. Hey, let's talk about and on, better. <laughs> and, and symbolism, the, when they pull out the, the parrot and like, oh, it's a bird trapped in a cage... Oh, anyway, you're right. Back to Sea Fever. It's better film. Um, another thing, I, I don't want to give... I, this is more contextual than anything else. The film could not have predicted this, but in light of the pandemic in which we find ourselves... I was thinking about... Yeah, I was thinking about the cliche how, of the floating Petri dish that we keep uh, hearing about in the media and how this film is essentially about that. It's interesting how, how close the scenario is to... Yeah, some of the events that have occurred in the last few months and some of the discussions we've been having about how those events might maybe should have been handled. But it's also funny to watch it post-COVID because all the people touching their face all the time, which I, I think is probably an intentional choice by the director to create suspense. But it, I, I, with our uh, current level of knowledge, I feel like the scientist would have said, hey, everyone, stop touching your face, stop touching your eyes. Yeah, to be, to be clear, a lot of discussion bases around how a parasite, um, I understand COVID operates distinct from what we see in this film and other parasites, yeah. but um, how a parasite, it is now just some extent, how a parasite can spread through wounds or touching each other or being close proximity to each other. But there's also a very key discussion about individual versus greater welfare. Um, if we were to go close to land, are we doing a disservice to others? Are we being selfish? Um, to what yeah. extent must we isolate ourselves? To what extent do we need to take the burden and sacrifice upon ourselves? To yeah. what extent should we not care or have thought for others around us? And that's obviously conversations that very much are playing in the cultural zeitgeist mm. for, very, it's a very, for very serious reasons right now. So the film uh, did resonate with more, I think a lot more now than it would have any other time. Um, curious timing in that regard. Um, in terms of the horror and the gore, there is a bit of it, but it's, it's not, not overdone. Yeah, it's not overdone. The whole film is way more low-key than you expect when you think, oh, people at sea trapped on a boat with creatures. You know, you expect a gore fest and something way more over the top in terms of scares and shocks and also um, in terms of how they deal with the problem. This tries to keep it grounded, and I actually appreciated that because it's tense enough. Mm. Yeah. And the actors were good. Hermione Caulfield. Actors were really good. Things. I haven't seen Doug Gray Scott, but he's playing in a long time, but he's playing the old sea captain. Who he was really good. Them. Yeah. He was really um, good. So was Nielsen. She's great in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that did annoy me, I call it the Bob effect after Stranger Things, where a character, it's such a thing in horror films, where just to show you what the creature can do, a character we're not supposed to care about dies in a horrific way. No one reacts or really does anything or pretends to care. And then when a character we're supposed to care about dies or something happens to them, suddenly, oh my God, it's on. Shit just got real. And this happened in this movie. And that really bothered me. Um, I appreciate that 
the, the first character to see that isn't someone supposed to identify with or know too much about, but it should have more of an impact on the tenor of the conversation, the tone of the film, um, certainly the impact on the character's psyche, especially as this is from the, we see this whole film play out from the perspective of a character who's mm. exposed to this, it, but it doesn't change tenor at all until it happens to someone, until it happens to a named character, which is a bit much for me. Uh, less of a stretch than in Stranger Things where no one cares about Bob, but still uh, I think a tonal shift that was necessary that wasn't present. Yeah, I agree. So that was, that was Sea Fever. Um, a, yeah, a, a pretty surprising, refreshing creature feature, a nice updating of old cliches. I think this is going to play really well with the crowd who uh, like the Cthulhu story. Yeah. And I wonder if this would have been in the uh, Freak Me Out strand had absolutely. there been a full festival instead of Europe Voices Women in Film. It probably would have been one of the key Because fe- Freak Me Out, I like Freak Me Out. And I see them all every year. A lot of them are, um, this isn't an aspersion, um, low budget bottle films, which rely on a lot of horror tropes and they're fun and they're great for midnight viewing. This one actually is quite innovative. So Yeah, and- this is a cut above. Yeah, this would this would may, maybe have led the freak me out section. Could have also played at the Irish Film Festival, or might still. Yeah, and yeah, Sea Fever. Uh, check it out. There's a lot of great films coming out of Ireland. And yeah, they they definitely are doing some good investment in new talent over there. Yeah. So I I was at my last night in Ireland. I was in Dublin, and I went to the Irish Film Institute. You know what they were playing? What? Uh, what's the film? It's the Australian. Like they they take clips from other, lots of other films. Pauline. Hemp, oh. Uh, um, Soda Jerk, the filmmakers. Yeah, the Soda Jerk compilation. Terry um, Nullius? Terry Nullius, that's it. Right. That's great. Like, I'm here and I see you. It's like The Simpsons. We're, we're in Japan and we go to America Town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Sydney Film Festival, huh? Yeah, another year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a weirder year than usual. So, here's a weirder SFF than usual. I, I don't know, maybe it's just smaller SFF than usual. Yeah. We've been having a lot of small nights in. No, not not many big days out. Yeah, but we'll have big days out. Um, cinemas open July first. Um, and I'm sure people are going to be going back soon. And like, let us know what you think of SFF because there's there's quite a few good films up there. Yeah, and it's going on for a bit. It's a nice thing to watch with friends. Yeah. Next week we'll be covering The Assistant and The Five Bloods, two of the biggest nudist streaming films of the moment. Yeah, new in new films out. Yeah, in the living room. Yeah, films that could do qualify for this year's Oscars run in the 14th month bracket that they're now. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Oh, damn. Yeah. So that's, so the films we covered just to recap were Sea Fever. It's, oh, it's not, it's a 16 month. Run. It's a 16 month bracket. Oh, you're it starts right. Yeah. from God. January. It's way too much. Yeah. Way too much. Anyway. Anyway, have a safe night. Yeah. Or a safe day. We Whenever. Always, have a great. safe rest of your days. Ideally. Yeah. Be safe. We'll yeah. see, see the movies well. incredibly soon. Take care, guys. Good night.